traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. In January, as Russian troops massed along Ukraine's border, the Finnish Prime Minister, Sanna Marin, insisted her country wasn't planning to join NATO. This is very unlikely. We have decided that we have the opportunity, the possibility to become NATO member state, but we are not applying and we are not discussing applying. Her Swedish counterpart, Magdalena Andersson, was similarly resolute. Even as war ripped through Ukraine, she rejected calls to become a member. The two countries have a centuries-long history of conquest, defeat and diplomatic entanglements with Russia. Since the end of the Cold War, they've shunned military alliances in favour of non-alignment. But Vladimir Putin's invasion has driven leaders in Finland and Sweden to rethink the price of neutrality. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, will Finland and Sweden join NATO? My guest is Carl Bildt, a stalwart of Swedish politics. From 1991 to 1994, he served as prime minister and negotiated Sweden's accession to the European Union. In 2006, he was back as foreign minister, strengthening relations with NATO and pushing for the integration of Ukraine into the EU. So, as the pendulum of political and public opinion swings, does he think this moment marks a shift the Nordics and NATO. Carl Bildt, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. Nice to be with you. When the war began in Ukraine, the idea that Sweden and Finland would join NATO was still seen as a bit outlandish. Uh, Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson said the country wouldn't seek to join. It would destabilise the security of Northern Europe. But more recently, she and her Finnish counterpart, Sanna Marin, have suggested both countries will seek to join NATO in the summer. Uh, first things first, will both countries join? What What is your reckoning? My reckoning is that it will happen. It is not yet decided, either in Finland or in Sweden. We have political processes separate, but fairly similar, that are moving ahead in both of the countries, Finland somewhat ahead of Sweden. But I don't see anything at the moment that speaks against it actually happening, that there will be an application from both countries at the latest by, I would say, early June. And what do you think has changed the mindset of both politicians and the public to lead rethinks of these positions on neutrality, which have been held for decades and in many ways have been seen as part of the political identity of the two countries of Finland and Sweden in different ways. Is it simply the threat of war on the doorstep or do you think there's something more going on there in the international order? I think it's essential, of course, February 24th, the Russian unprovoked massive attack against Ukraine with the sort of expressed uh, purpose of virtually eliminating Ukraine as a nation. That's quite, to put it very mildly, quite an upsetting development. 
Mr. Putin hasn't made any secret of the fact that he wants to alter the entire security order of, of Europe. And that, of course, makes it necessary for small nations like Finland and Sweden to start to think seriously about their security. You say it's been neutrality forever. That's not quite true. The name of the game for both Sweden and Finland has, as a matter of fact, been survival in a complicated European environment. And our policies have adapted accordingly. The main reason, if you take the situation after 1945, why Sweden decided to stay outside of the Atlantic Alliance when Denmark and Norway joined, we had first explored the possibility of a Nordic defense alliance, but then primarily the Norwegians say we go west and the Danes follow them. And Sweden said with the rather exposed position that Finland had, Sweden going with the Atlantic Alliance would in all probability have extremely increased the pressure of Stalin on Finland and perhaps not even made it possible for Finland to survive. That was distinctly not in Sweden's interest, apart from emotional and political links between the countries. It was pure security interest. So the fact that we stayed out of NATO for the entire Cold War period was to a large extent because of Finland. When Prime Minister Andersson says the decision to join NATO can't be rushed, what would be gained by delaying? It's not something that you do over breakfast. It takes a somewhat longer time, and particularly in Sweden, but also Finland. Security issues are taken seriously. We are democracies. These are decisions that have to be taken with as broad a consensus as possible. If you look at the magnitude of the decision, a couple of months is not much of a delay. But let's look at the position of those who oppose NATO membership. What reasons do you take seriously there? Because there are some people, if you like, who have a worldview, an ideology that doesn't like NATO. It's often found on the far left of politics, but it's also found to an extent on the right. And Marine Le Pen is a good example in France. But there are also people who don't belong to extremes and don't feel themselves to be the extremes, who just think that it shouldn't be a default position that Western countries, even if close to Russia, uh, should be in NATO, and that there may be space for neutrality. Has that era come to an end? I think to a large extent it has. If I read the Finnish political landscape rightly, and let's see in the next uh, few days, I think you'll end up with a situation where every political party in Finland is going to support an application. Finland is, of course, a nation that, due to its history, has security in its DNA to a large extent. Sweden is a somewhat different case. Um, because there you have more of what you allude to. You have a sentiment primarily on the left, where they have associated NATO with the Americans and B-52s over Vietnam and the Iraq War and uh, Abu Ghraib, you name it. And they say that any association with that would sort of compromise the virginity, or whatever it is, of the Swedish policy. I've been surprised, frankly, that in the public debate that we have in Sweden at the moment, I haven't heard more of that. I've heard a couple of voices, but not very much. What you have as alternatives that have been discussed in the uh, Swedish debate, first there was an attempt to look at Swedish-Finnish defence alliance. Uh, I think that fell by the wayside very fast for two reasons. The prime one was that Finland would never consider that to be sufficient. And secondly, that it would not increase the security of Sweden. So that has virtually disappeared from the debate. Others have been saying that, well, we are members of the European Union. Uh, so why don't we now do more to build up the defense potential and security potentials uh, of the European Union and see that as the alternative to NATO? I mean, there are quite a number of good arguments for doing that. I'm in favor of doing all of that. 
it has the slightly obvious disadvantage that there are two factors that even if you build up the European Union, there are two things that the EU doesn't have. Uh, one is called the United States uh, for obvious reasons and the other one is called the United Kingdom for somewhat regrettable reasons. And if you look at which powers would be militarily of relevance when it comes to augmenting defense potential in the Nordic world, it's essentially the United States and, and, and Great Britain. The other reason to have concerns perhaps uh, about expanding NATO, I mean, one is slightly that it fulfills the story that Vladimir Putin has been telling, that NATO is in an expansionist mode and is expanding closer and closer to Russia's borders. That's not really an argument in good faith. It does invite that analysis as far as the the Kremlin is concerned. These things have a habit of working out in some weird way, the way that the enemies of the West said would happen, but of course, not for the reasons that they put forward. Does that give you pause for thought? Not really. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what the sort of final Russian reaction is going to be. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, and that goes to the entire argument from the Russian side, is that it's not really been NATO being keen to go east. It has been these different nations being keen to go west. Neither the European Union or NATO was, if you go back in history, particularly keen on expanding. But when you had everyone knocking on the door, the Poles and the Estonians and the Latvians and the Lithuanians, at some point in time, they couldn't say no and they were admitted in. And in this particular case as well, I mean, it's not that the Americans or someone else has come to Sweden and say, shouldn't you now join NATO because we are in the mood of expanding? Certainly not. It's been a process in Finland and Sweden driven by our security concerns and is us knocking on the door for our particular reasons. I do understand that. And I think I think most of our listeners would, would grasp that, but I, I just raise it because I can see that that would be the response. So if the overall and obviously diplomacy and political manoeuvring is about predicting what the response is going to be, do you see any danger that this leads Vladimir Putin and possibly any successes to double down on a Russian nationalist position? I think there's a risk of Russia doubling down on the nationalist position. I don't think that will have to do with Sweden and Finland primarily. I think that that particular segment of Russian public opinion or Russian regime uh, narrative is now totally consumed by Ukraine and that part of the Russian imperialist dream that there isn't really much room for Sweden and Finland. What the Russian reaction is going to be, I mean, there was a statement by Dmitry Medvedev the other day who said that um, if you do this, uh, we might consider moving nuclear weapons closer to you. The problem with that is that that was a fairly empty threat, uh, because they already have nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad. And up on the Kola Peninsula, close to the border between Norway and Finland, they had the greatest concentration of nuclear weapons anywhere in the world. So I failed to see that they can move them closer to where they already are. I think what they are concerned with from the Russian military point of view, when they are writing papers in the general staff in Moscow, I don't think they've ever been under the illusion that Sweden and Finland is anything but the West. And from that point of view, hard-nosed reality, it doesn't change that much. What would change if, if they saw sort of massive American Western military bases in Sweden and Finland or uh, offensive weapon systems or that sort of thing. That would concern them. Uh, but I don't see that happening. Tell me a bit more about what Sweden would then bring to the table here, because I wonder, firstly, whether the desire to have protection from NATO is always matched 
in public opinion by the readiness to play the part and the attack on one is an attack on all, says very clearly that you have to be prepared to send troops to any NATO member, which might be the next target of a Russian invasion. Are you confident, someone who's led your country, you know the mood of your people, that that is what they are in for? You never know, but I think it's going to be dependent upon the circumstances. That is what is foreseen in the treaties as well of the Atlantic Alliance. I mean, there's no automaticity to every single contingency. But why it will make a change, no question, is that it will make it substantially easier for today's NATO to defend Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. And with the possibility of planning for the defence and security of the entire Northern European and Baltic area, it of course makes that task easier. All of the studies that's made both in Finland and Sweden points at the deterrence value of NATO in Northern Europe will substantially increase with Sweden and Finland uh, entering, then would we be prepared to send forces in different contingencies and different deployments in other areas? I mean, we did, of course, already go back to NATO in Bosnia, go back to the NATO mission in Kosovo, go back to the NATO mission in Afghanistan. Sweden has been part of all of these NATO missions fairly substantially during quite some time, and so have Finland. Uh, so I think we have demonstrated our readiness to be taking our part of responsibility. It's certainly, that is true. But when it comes to spending, military spending in Sweden has been described as anemic. The current defence budget is estimated to be around 1.3% of GDP. How long would it take Sweden to catch up with the 2% target? There is now the declared ambition to do it. Uh, that's another effect of February 24th. We have a minority social democratic government at the moment. They were distinctly against it only months ago. They are distinctly in favour of it now. They did ask the military authorities, the Supreme Commander, as it's called, to report back to the government how fast he thinks that he can reach the 2%. Allocating money is one thing, but you need to spend it on things and you need to train personnel and whatever. And who reported back the other day and said that by 2028, at the latest, he would be able to make good use of that particular money. But it does change some things quite profoundly, doesn't it, about the view of foreign and security policy that the country's taken for a long time. And I'm thinking there about that commitment to nuclear disarmament, where Sweden has often pressed ahead and sustained that commitment, where it's kind of waxed and waned across a lot of Western powers. How does the nuclear challenge and the nuclear threat, which is bandied about very openly by Vladimir Putin, change that position? No, I think you're correct. I mean, that is one point that is seen as sensitive by at least part of Swedish public opinion, because they do believe, I think, that we have played a major role in sort of advocating nuclear disarmament. But that's a sensitive spot. I don't think it will change that. If you look at a country like Norway, a firm member of the Atlantic Alliance, they have been sort of advocating roughly the same line when it comes to nuclear weapons and the necessity of nuclear arms control and nuclear disarmament as Sweden has. So I don't think it will change much, but I think it's an issue where one has to be sensitive. It's also a fact, of course, that the entire sort of arsenal, intellectual arsenal of nuclear deterrence is seen as somewhat alien to what a lot of Swedes are used to. I think that will be far less of a problem in Finland, but it will be something that will have to be managed in the Swedish debate. 
Sweden, along with its Nordic neighbours, has managed a, a relationship with Russia for many decades without poking the bear, so to speak. And I think you said recently of Sweden and Finland's bid to join NATO that no Nordic country wants to become a spearhead directed against Russia. It's obviously a sensible sentiment, but once you are a NATO member in a military alliance and looking at the map and simply the geography and history combined, that is the way that it might well be seen. Yes, but I think care should be taken that it's not seen like that. And here I think we can follow the example of Norway. Uh, as I said, Norway NATO member is very close to the entire Kola base complex, which is probably the single most important military area of Russia. They have a policy of not really allowing allied maneuvers at a very considerable distance from the Russian border. Both them and Denmark, when they joined NATO, they had two unilateral reservations. One was the basing of nuclear weapons. Uh, and the second was that they didn't really ask for and didn't really want to what they call a permanent military foreign basis in, in peacetime. And they have stuck to that policy more or less uh, for the entire post-war period, including up to today. I think the issue of nuclear basing is not an issue these days. No one has any intention to base further nuclear weapons in, in Western Europe. And permanent military bases isn't much of an issue either. And do you feel strongly that Volodymyr Zelensky should be able to talk with confidence about a future, with, if not as a candidate member for NATO, which seems to be off the, the, the table for now, but towards joining the European Union and to that sense of being bound into Western alliances? Because the, the wisdom of that does divide the argument, doesn't it? Yes, I have been advocating very clearly that there should be, expressively said, what we call a European perspective for Ukraine. When we negotiated the sort of the deep and comprehensive free trade agreement and association agreement, all of those that eventually caused Putin to react with the 2013 and 2014 crisis, uh, we were explicit from quite a number of countries say that over time, absolutely, dependent upon progress, depending on reform, depending on a lot of factors, the door to the European Union should be open for Ukraine. How it will be now remains to be seen. They have now applied for membership of the European Union. It is quite a step. What the EU has said is, of course, that they have opened a process now with the Ukraine in a way that was unthinkable a couple of years ago. But I'm thinking back to a piece that John Mearsheimer, the American analyst, wrote on this topic. You'll be familiar with, with some of his argument. And just to, to boil it down, he says, if Ukraine becomes a pro-American liberal democracy and a member of NATO and a member of the EU and or, the Russians will consider that categorically unacceptable. And he blames that sense that the, this promise was on offer, which began at the NATO summit in Bucharest in 2008, as the West's great blunder uh, when it came to managing uh, Russia in the post-communist period. Is he right? I think he's right if you discuss it in military terms. I mean, if Ukraine was seen as a bastion of building up offensive American military potential, it would clearly be something that would be sort of destabilizing. But if Ukraine becomes, and I've been very much in favor of that, a liberal functioning stable democracy. I agree it's a threat to the Putin regime, but I think it's a long-term advantage for Russia. I, I, I think it would help the, with the transformation of Russia that must come back at some point in the Russian history. Uh, they have to get out of this particular phase of sort of imperialist dreams and 
autocratic governance and go for some sort of constitutional governance, call it democracy or call it whatever. And then the fact that the Ukraine has shown the path is something that should be to the advantage of Russia long term and should be to the advantage of the overall stability of, of Europe. I can see that Mr. Putin sees that as a threat. That doesn't concern me that much, but it's not a threat to Russia. On the contrary, it's rather a promise to Russia. I suppose the view that Mersheimer is channeling is a kind of Kissingerian worldview that you have to live with the great powers the way they are, not only the way you would wish that they would develop. And obviously, as a former Moscow correspondent in the 1990s, straight after the end of communism, and I'm fully with you and I wish it was a different Russia. Right? But it is it is the Russia that we have, and it may not be, even uh, if the uh, Putin era approaches its end at some point as a result of this war, it may not develop into the kind of liberal democracy that we probably both had hopes of, of seeing in many countries that we've been involved with. And I suppose his argument is then that these promises can make things worse. Is it possible that the West and Western liberal opinion with the best of intentions sometimes makes things worse? No, I think caving into that argument would be extremely dangerous because that would mean that sort of Finland and Poland and uh, Ukraine and other would bend to the wishes of the Kremlin uh, that we would accept. Their sovereignty would be limited. One of the latest, might be last times, I had a lengthy discussion with Sergei Lavrov. I told him a story which influenced me profoundly. I had a lunch X numbers of years ago with Helmut Kohl. I wasn't prime minister and Kohl wasn't chancellor at the time. And it turned into a discussion of history, as it always did with Kohl and, and, and the Second World War. And uh, the atrocities that Germany had sort of uh, subjected Luxembourg to. And at the end of it, Helmut Kohl said, that is only when the smallest of our neighbours see us Germans as the best of their friends, that Germany can be profoundly secure. And I said to Sergei, learn from that. It's only when even the smallest neighbors of Russia see you as their biggest of friends that you will be truly secure. You can never scare people into being friends and scare them into security. You can only do it by being a true friend. He didn't really answer me. But I think that is the lesson that Russia must learn. Might be that it's now learning the mistakes of another policy in a very sort of brutal way. Germany did learn that lesson. Other countries that have gone through similar historical experience have learned that particular lesson. Europe will not be fully secure until Russia has learned that lesson. You mentioned Sergei Lavrov there, the very bullish foreign minister of, of Russia. You refer to him by his first name because you, you met him, you've spoken with him. I had a very sort of glancing conversation with him many years ago on, on the same topic. Did you see in someone like him and those people who've, in the end, been pulled closer and closer into the Putin worldview and represent it, kind of shill for it, did you see those signs early on? And if not, what do you think changed? What went wrong in the Sergei Lavrov that you were able to have that conversation about ethics, but also practicalities of international power with to end up with the Sergei Lavrov that you can see threatening more violence against Ukraine? I can't say that I saw this. No, I got, I got to know him going back to the Borkin days uh, when he was an extremely competent ambassador of Russia in the United Nations. And that was also a time where we had sort of essentially rather good relationship with 
Russia. I met him for the first time, by the way, when he was a deputy to Andrei Kosyev, when we had an even better relationship with Russia. Neither me nor Andrei Kosyev, by the way, who I'm still in touch with, uh, saw any of these tendencies at that particular time. He's an extremely competent, intelligent, smart man. He's not ignorant of where Russia is heading. He's not ignorant of what Russia is doing. Why has he let himself to be carried along by this? It might be that if he hasn't got a choice, he's gone too far and has to go the full way and uh, he can't jump ship. It might be that he has actually convinced himself of what he's saying. I find that difficult to believe, but um, we must leave the jury open on that one. But Andrei Kozarev was a guest on the show a few weeks ago. He thought the answer might simply be greed. Could be, could be. Uh, Andrei would know more about that uh, trait of Mr. Lavrov than I I do. I wanted to ask you about war crimes. You've been the European Union Special Envoy to former Yugoslavia and also the UN Special Envoy to the Balkans. Uh, That ended up in uh, quite a a long and complex reckoning. Uh, Some of it did seem to finally get somewhere with the tribunals on atrocities in the fighting in the former Yugoslavia. Now we see allegations of war crimes, credible ones, committed by Russian soldiers in Ukraine. Where do you see this heading in terms of the best institutional, the best way to deal with it, knowing what we know from the Balkans, that it's very easy for it to get entangled in processes and challenges? But the Balkan experience is essentially a good one. You can argue it took far too long time, it cost far too much money. Some of the conclusions that they reached were subject to controversy and are still subject to controversy, but that was a process. That process was, of course, set up by the UN Security Council in a period when all of the great powers, Russia, US, Europeans, were in agreement on it. That is clearly not going to be possible here. Since then, we've had development with the Roman statute and the International Criminal Court, but um, key nations are not part of it. The United States is not part of it, to take one. Russia is not part of it. It can only get jurisdiction in a case like this, if there's a decision by the Security Council. The likelihood that Russia will agree to that is, I think, slightly small, to put it very mildly. If that UN route is cut off by that fact, do you think that Vladimir Putin himself, or indeed his senior military, the people who've given the orders and carried out these terrible deeds, will ever be brought to justice? I would hope so. If we go back to the Balkans, uh, what happened with Slobodan Milosevic was that there was political change in Belgrade and he lost power. It was the regime or the new democratic regime in, in Belgrade that delivered him to justice. And, and I think that's going to be the same here. It can only be when there is political change in Russia that this can really happen. I mean, that the present regime will deliver Putin to sort of a tribunal in The Hague not going to happen. A successor regime that's virtually the same, not going to happen. Some other better Russian regime that wants to really uh, launch itself anew on the world stage and gain credibility and, and, and be seen as a decent nation. I wouldn't exclude it entirely. That does make it sound not to be overly pessimistic about the future of Russia because big changes have occurred. We've been witness to many of them across the last 30 years following the fall of the Berlin Wall. But when Joe Biden and President Zelensky accuse Russia of genocide 
and say that this needs to be reckoned with. It sounds to me like you think this is not something that is likely to happen in the foreseeable future. Change could happen in Russia. I often remind people of the fact that Russia is the only sort of state that has collapsed twice in a century. I mean, it collapsed in 1917, de facto, it collapsed in 1991, when the Russian states at that time, or Soviet state in the latter case, was simply unable to cope with the pressure of events. It's not to be excluded entirely that that would happen. I don't think that would happen next week, by the way. But if you took it about a longer period of time, I wouldn't exclude that. But no one could know, make any predictions, what that would lead to in its turn. It's a big place, as you know. It's an unpredictable place. And the unpredictability has been one of the defining characters of its history. But in the meantime, I think it's very important that we collect all of the evidence there is of war crimes, that that is made available to perhaps independent tribunals or other institutions or the UN as far as they can do it, so that the documentation is there. And the legal processes are starting in other countries, and that will have sort of a negative, vastly negative effect on the ability of the Russian state, Mr. Putin personally, and others who are responsible to operate in different ways in the years to come. Carl Bildt, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. A pleasure to be with you. And do let us know what you think. Is it a foregone conclusion that Sweden and Finland will join NATO? If they do, does that mean the door should remain open for Ukraine? Write to us at podcast.economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. In my conversation with Carl Bildt, we discussed the opinion piece that political analyst John Mearsheimer wrote for The Economist on why he blames the West for the Ukraine crisis. You'll find that article on our website, along with others from leading thinkers, including Ivo Dalda, America's former NATO ambassador, on why he reckons enlargement didn't go far enough. And also, if you missed my conversation on this podcast with Russia's former foreign minister, Andrei Kozarev, you'll find that wherever you get your podcasts. But the only way to enjoy full access to all of our journalism is to become a subscriber. To sign up, visit economist.com slash podcast offer and the link is in the show notes. My producer is Alessia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.